Welcome to Lynn Cullen Live, talk radio without the static. Email your questions and comments to lynn at pghcitypaper.com. And now your host, Lynn Cullen. Hey there, and welcome to uh, the show. <laughs> Lynn Cullen Live. Some days I feel more uh, live than others. The show sometimes seems like a bit of a misnomer, but not today. I definitely do feel uh, alive today. we got a good show for you. We'll be joined in a half hour by uh, Jennifer Murtazashvili, who is uh, the director of Pitt Center for Governance and Markets. <laughs> Excuse me. And she is the one who has put together this program of volunteers desperately trying to get um, Afghans who worked for the uh, government in some way, help the Americans uh, to get the paperwork necessary to get out. Um, So she will be joining us later to talk about that, uh, that effort. Uh, they are being inundated by calls for help from Afghanistan. Um, the other big story is the resurgence, of course, of uh, COVID-19 um, and the continuing um recalcitrance and just extraordinary uh, lack of concern for human life under their under a measure of their control of some Republican governors. Just astonishing. Astonishing. Um, If you look at, you know, the numbers that are coming out now, you look where the trouble lies mostly, although of course it's spreading all over the place. Allegheny County now is in a high high uh, level of uh, of spread and uh, you should be masking again in indoor places if you're vaccinated or not. Um, but if you look at like just the ICUs um, in in some states, and they all have Republican governors, the states I'm about to mention, their ICUs are essentially full in the entire state. So whether somebody is in need of critical care for heart conditions, uh, any other illness, disease, Uh, COVID is just one possibility of you ending up in an ICU, uh, of course. And uh, and yet in Alabama, there's not a bed in the entire state. And in Florida, in Georgia, in Mississippi, and in Texas, more than 90% of all ICU beds are already taken. Now, these numbers are from 24 hours ago. For all I know, they're they're all up to capacity at this point because the trend, as you know, is nothing 
but going in the wrong direction direction it's going it's going up uh then in the midst of all of this i see and i'm i'm going to quote from a story in the the new york times today which I think is a little behind the curve, but I don't know. It's the headline is U.S. to recommend booster shots uh, for most Americans after eight months. Now, yes, I've I heard that yesterday. I also heard that somebody I know already got a booster shot yesterday. At an appointment, 3 p.m., CVS. And I am really confused because the New York Times says right here in the first paragraph that third shots could be offered as early as the third week of September. Well, that's interesting because it's the third week of August. And as I said, someone I know already has gotten a booster shot. The article goes on to say the new policy, this booster shot, will need, will depend on Food and Drug Administration authorization of these additional shots. But as I said, I know somebody in Pittsburgh. (laughs) who got the shot at a CVS yesterday. Later on in this article, it says the first boosters would probably go to nursing home residents. I assure you this person I know is not a nursing home resident. Healthcare workers, he's not a healthcare worker. Emergency workers, he's not an emergency worker. Likely then those groups would be followed by other older people. This person is younger than me, uh, and then by the general population. So I, I, I want to know uh, what the hell's going on here. <laughs> um, is this another botch, totally screwed up? Uh, all I know is that Someone I know got a third shot, Pfizer, at a CVS on Center Avenue in Oakland yesterday. No problem. So is this article in the New York Times, the paper of record, just wrong? Or has CVS jumped the gun and aside from all of that are we going to see the same kind of what I think of as an unseemly rush uh, by people to get these shots Uh, we know there are enough to go around there the government is stockpiling 100 million uh, doses and they've ordered more that are due in September. And all of this, of course, does not even begin to address the ethical issue. And what would that be? 
the ethical issue that fewer than 15% of the entire population of this planet has been vaccinated at all. And so there's something that makes me really queasy about Americans who already have two shots in their system, like I'm assuming most of you and me, and now we're able to get a third. Evidence suggests that, in fact, uh, Pfizer, especially, does begin to lose uh, efficacy uh, within uh, after six months. And this is all from, you know, one one study, essentially, from Israel. But as we've learned with this COVID, this particular novel virus, things change rapidly. And we're learning as we go. The scientists are learning as they go. Governments have to respond to new information and new realities on the fly. And so the sense that I have of, again, confusion, reading an article from the paper of record telling me that the Food and Drug Administration has to sign off on this and the soonest we could be seeing these booster shots is in a month and that the first people who will be getting them, like the initial shots, would be, of course, nursing home residents, uh, the first responders and, uh, you know, immunocompromised, whatever, people who are most at risk, not the general population. And yet I know that someone in the general population, no problem at all, got a third shot yesterday right here at a CVS in Oakland. So you tell me what's going on. And you tell me what the right thing to do. Gigi asked, did your friend give the pharmacy the impression that this was his first shot? No. No. And in fact, he showed, my understanding is he showed them his card. They knew full well he was coming in for a third shot. His wife, who tried uh, to get one as well, was told that because her two first shots were not Pfizer, which is what the CBS was dealing in, but was in fact Moderna, she would have to go to another CBS and she was given the address of another CBS that had Moderna and she was able to make a, uh, a reservation for her third dose, uh, I believe tomorrow. So what the hell can I – I mean, I don't like – this This strikes me as line jumping again, and I don't it, – it, it, I don't like it. 
and I'm anxious myself to get this third shot, even with the moral and ethical issues I raised, which are damning, really. Gigi says, I imagine this is going to be a botched rollout once again. I do so wish we could work on getting the world vaccinated, along with the reluctant fools in this country. Well, I had another friend over yesterday. He is a doctor, and I asked him about this, and he suggested that... um, yeah, you probably can get these third doses now. And he said he figures that any 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 vaccine going into anybody, anybody, is in some small way helping to deny the virus of a home. So he was less inclined to be uh, judgmental than <laughs> is than than I. Um, as the Pope said yesterday, you know, he sees getting a vaccine as an act of love. But so here we are in the United States. Aren't we a lucky bunch? Are we better people? Are we more deserving? Absolutely not. We're just lucky by accident of birth and geography. And we do know that our government is making vaccine available to poorer nations. But the fact is, is that wealthy nations like ours are first making taking care of their own. And again, this is how nations generally act. That's the idea of a governing body like this. What is the first thing the government is tasked with? And that is securing its nation and its people. So it's... (laughs) It's hard for me to, you know, squawk and scream about the ethical uh, issue here when I know that a politician that runs a country and a government would be destroyed if he or she did not first take care of the people he has the, the power to do. The, the responsibility, I think, is how some would see it to, to take care of. That there's no actual responsibility for people anywhere other than this country. But as, a, as an individual, I must say that I'm queasy. We've got some callers I just saw, excuse me. So uh, let's get to the phones. Hello, go ahead, please. Hello. Hi. Hi. Um, hey, that 
that Dr. Gupta was on yesterday, and he said there's no alarm mm-hmm. to get a booster shot. He said that study in Israel, that's just saying people were positive. It's mostly people are unvaccinated, and he says that they're going to – the CDC is doing a, not a good thing by alarming people like this. He said probably in eight months to a year might need a booster, but he didn't see where it was – we had to get one. So I'm going by what he says because I, okay. I think that many shots in – that short of time is not good for your body. I do believe that. So, <laughs> being in okay. the well, years ago and used to get those shots of that. So, um, okay. Well, thank that. you for that. But that's what I'm saying. What are we? It's another botched uh, well, rollout. I think we're none of us know. Really no. If you're sickly uh, person, there's a chance you might die from it. Yeah, you could die from the flu too. So I'm not, you know worry too much. I do think maybe someday in the future we'll have to get one, but I think we're good to go now when I'm reading stuff. That's my opinion. So whatever. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, you know yes, what my thank opinion you. is good for nothing. Yeah, right, right, right. Yeah. Thank you, doctor. Okay. okay. All yeah, right. Bye-bye. Bye. <laughs> Bye. Uh, we have another, <laughs> we have another call. Hello. Hey, man, it's Mike in USC. Hey, Hi. Sorry to call two days in a row, but it's only line jumping if there's a line. They can't give them away. So I wouldn't do it, not because there's a line ahead of me, but because, as the previous caller mentioned, the science has yet to be determined. They're thinking, from what I've read, that eight months out for Pfizer people, a booster shot will be recommended. But at that point, if CVS has them, why would I have to wait for people in nursing homes to get it first if CVS has the shot? There's only a line. There's only line jumping if there's a line. That's a good point. That's a good point. And but I it's CVS. So bad that, I, yep. Okay. If Go CVS ahead. what? I don't know. Are they following the, are there rules that any of these people have to follow? I mean, is the New York Times wrong that there has to be a FDA authorization before this can go uh, to the third shot? If that's true, then CVS is flouting the FDA here. Well, if I was your friend's insurance company, I'd be waiting 30 days from now to see if they got billed for that shot. Because when you go to CVS, they ask you for your insurance. And the insurance has been approved for one and two shots. If the FDA didn't come out and say, there's a Ah, third shot you should take, I bet the insurance Mm -hmm. isn't going to pay it for it. But CVS makes their money if they put it in my arm or if they put it in an 11 and a half year old's arm. A friend of mine just had her son, who's 11 and a half, get the vaccine. You can just walk up. You don't have to show ID, right? You just walk in, or you don't have to show a proof of age. You walk in, give them your card, because I got my two at CVS. You walk in, give them your card. They take your um, online. They take your insurance information. You show up. You show your card again, and they give you the shot. Mm Okay. Okay. All right. So I guess uh, if you want it, go get it. Now, the thing is, they're saying after eight months, 
Now, the person I know who got the shot is is it's after six months, but he decided what the hell. So we're all like just figuring this out on our own again. Or there's a protocol and the protocol, people are going to ignore that protocol and do what they are afraid or do what they think is best. Like, like your previous caller said, and like I say, I'm following the doctors, the CDC's protocol. And when they stay eight months out, I'll count back from April and get it done. Mm-hmm. Not because okay. I'm afraid I'm going to grow a third tit if I get it, but because, you know, it's the protocol. I'm, they know more than me. And it's weird, like we were talking about yesterday with the humility. These people know more <laughs> than I do. So yeah, they I'm do. Listen to that. All right. Okay. Well, I'm just going to, I don't know. I'm going to follow. The doctor who I talked to yesterday said he follows the doctor's advice. He said, I'm a good doctor. I follow the medical advice. If they're telling me in eight months I can get a, I should get a booster, I'm going to get a booster. Yeah, me too. And that brings up yeah. another point that I had with a friend of mine who went to her doctor and she said, should I get the vaccine? And I said, you asked the doctor the wrong question. My friend said, what do you mean? I said, you should have asked the doctor, did you get the vaccine? Hmm. Right? Yeah. So um, um, that's what I'm doing. And I may change my mind. <laughs> I may be at yes, of course. picking up something and then say, oh, what the Yeah, hell? right. Yeah, yeah oh. right. Exactly right. <laughs> I probably just created a run on the CBS. Whatever. <laughs> You do have to have an appointment, apparently. That's what I was yeah. told. You can't yeah, just you have to go online. Okay. Yeah, you have to go online. Yeah. yeah. For now. All right. All right. Okay. Okay. Jeez. Bye. <laughs> Bye. Bye. Dear Lord in heaven. Henry says you only need to walk into your shot provider and tell them you're obese. Yeah, but what if you're not? Tell, well, yeah, I see what you're saying. And you get the booster. The CDC recommends a booster for high-risk individuals. Obesity was good enough as a risk factor before. Yeah, you could say you're a smoker, I guess. Um, a little bit of the Wild West going on here. And Aaron, yeah, well, Aaron, you're going by the book here. The immunocompromise, that's what I had read. That happened a few days ago, that the dispensers pretty much go on the honor system. The general public will be authorized in the coming weeks with preference going to the groups you listed. There is so much vaccine available that it will pretty much be unrestricted. Sure. Well, in my professional role, I have already secured the supplies to prepare to give the boosters. Oh, well, I come to you. So there you have it. Whatever. Just saying. Uh, for all you people who like to be first, it's possible. That's what I learned uh, yesterday. For all you early adopters, I tend to I tend to be a rule follower when it comes to this stuff, and uh, so I will I will lay back for a while. I think. I don't know. I don't know. None of us do. 
Yeah. So you got uh, what Governor Abbott in Texas. Now he's positive. He, of course, while, you know, doing everything he can to kill as many Texans as he possibly can, has him was himself vaccinated. And he was tested every day. He's so far ahead in terms of getting care, uh, testing every day. So the, uh, the test the, immediately after testing positive, he gets, uh, you know, the the antibodies, the Regeneron, whatever those things are. Um, you, me, not so much. But this is a guy who has issued, you know, mandate saying you can't local officials uh, cannot mandate masks. School districts cannot mandate masks. He, like DeSantis, it's just uh, uh, these people are so repulsive. And um, Barbara sent me me this, uh, speaking of how repulsive these people are. You know, uh, DeSantis in Florida has been, you know, way out there discouraging uh, vaccines, discouraging mask wearing, making it uh, threatening to punish school districts that do, uh, making it almost impossible for any of these uh, smaller uh, governmental agencies to try to protect uh, their people. Um, and and instead, he has started opening up these facilities for people who have it. It's like he is willing to let people get it and then immediately treat them to use this Regeneron uh, product. This, uh, why am I blanking on the covalent antibody thing? Monoclonal antibodies, right? And... Um, that seems real monoclonal. <laughs> I'll get it. Monoclonal antibody, which once you get it, it's what Trump got. And, uh, you know, it, it has shown that it really can uh, tamp down the severity of the illness. But why would a governor say to his people, don't bother about getting it? It's just once you get it, we'll help you get the monoclonal antibodies because that's what DeSantis is doing in Florida. He's opened up all these uh, big clinics where you can go to get it once you got COVID. Well, guess what? The person who is the second largest investor in Regeneron Happens to be a billionaire, of course he would be, and he also happens to be, his name is Ken Griffin, he also happens to be Ron DeSantis's number one political donor. So this guy, Ken Griffin, who is already a billionaire and who makes billions more from Regeneron monoclonal antibodies is the largest donor to Ron DeSantis. How repulsive is that? 
My God. My God. So, um, and yeah, (laughs) worst human beings in the world, worst human beings in the world, Ron DeSantis, Governor Abbott of the great state of Texas, who we can be assured will recover from this virus with probably no problems at all since he has gotten from day one the greatest treatment. Treatment, first of all, to avoid getting it, and then once he did get it, immediate treatment. How is it that the people of these states don't react to this incredible hypocrisy and chicanery like I am reacting to it. How do they not throw these guys out? I know perhaps they are not uh, aware, right? They're listening to the wrong news. Uh, Okay. I got to tell you, uh, the other huge story now, of course, as I said at the beginning of the show, is our uh, chaotic, to say the least, uh, withdrawal from Afghanistan after this 20-year missed venture. And uh, we all have seen the pictures of desperate, terrified people. And we know that the pictures we are seeing are just a small, small snapshot of the reality of the fear and desperation in that country of people too afraid, women especially too afraid to even leave their homes or be seen. Um, I was shocked when I heard that there was something going on at the University of Pittsburgh, you know, 7,000 miles away, that was an effort to help some of these desperate people get out. Now, what could that possibly be? Well, the woman whose idea it was to help is uh, Jennifer Murtazashvili, and uh, she is the director of Pitt Center for Governance and Markets, and she joins us now, and I have so many questions of her, I'm not sure where to start. Jennifer, first of all, thank you so much for joining us. It's a pleasure. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank, Thank you. Where, okay, first of all, you're the director of something called Pitt Center for Governance and Markets. That doesn't seem to have anything to do with helping people, desperate people, get out of Afghanistan. Where did you explain your idea and how, what, what it is you're doing? So, uh, you know, the center that we have, we 
study self-governing bottom-up governance solutions uh, that communities come up with all over the world. And the inspiration for this center came from my many years of work in Afghanistan. And I have been working in Afghanistan. I first went in 2005. And before that, um, I lived in Central Asia, in Uzbekistan for five years. I was a Peace Corps volunteer, and then I worked for the U.S. government, the U.S. Agency for International Development for three years. And I was working in the U.S. Embassy there on 9-11. And it was actually part of the first humanitarian effort to get aid into Afghanistan on 9-11. So uh, the past 15 years, really, I've been focused almost solely on Afghanistan. I speak languages done extensive field research. I've written two books on the country, working on a third. So um, the, the approach of our center and, and the first book that I wrote was trying to understand how communities govern themselves when states can't or won't. And I spent wow. a lot of time in rural Afghanistan interviewing people, trying to understand how the, the complex rules of their traditional system of governance, the relationship with the state, um, so much creativity, uh, so much inspiration uh, that I drew from that experience. So I continue to work on Afghanistan in my own research. Our center does a lot of different things. Uh, but when this, uh, you know, about um, August 2nd, the State Department announced this P2 visa program, which expanded the number of people who are eligible for visas to come to the United States. First, it was just military translators. Then they, they expanded it to researchers and people working on U.S. government projects, development projects, uh, journalists, and so forth. And that's really the people who I knew best. So my email mm-hmm. and, and direct messages just blew up with people asking for help for one specific thing. They worked for a U.S. government organization, and they needed that organization to give them a letter of support saying that they worked for them at some point and they cannot apply for asylum unless they have this letter and believe it or not getting this letter is not easy and the people who we're dealing with these afghans are very well educated they have been the biggest supporters of the u.s effort have stuck their neck out to work for the u.s under great threats during the past 20 years. It has not been easy in Kabul to work for American organizations. And so I started getting request after request after request. I asked one of our student workers to help out with this because it was just my personal connections was just blowing up. And I had an idea that maybe we could help more people who are having the same problem to connect them with their former employers just to get this letter of support so they can apply. And that was your idea. And tell me, tell me, even, I, I mean, my sense is, is that even if these desperate people get the letter from you, that's just one, I'm, I'm terrified that that's just one step in this bureaucratic, nightmarish maze that they're still going to have to try yes. to get themselves yes. through. Yes. The U.S. government and the Biden administration couldn't have thought of a more bureaucratic, convoluted way to get people who have helped us out of this country. And I want to tell you, those scenes that you saw in the airport, one of the rules of this asylum process is that you cannot be in Afghanistan to apply for asylum. So it means those people who are at the airport were the people who are at greatest risk, who had to get out in order to apply 
That's who was chasing after our airplanes. Those were our closest allies. And to me, that was such an act of betrayal. What do you make of this, uh, this bollocksed up effort? I mean, I can't, I, I'm stunned by it. I really am stunned. I, I saw that somebody said, I think it was Fareed Zakaria said, look, there is no elegant way to lose a war. Well, yes, that is <laughs> hogwash. I mean, <laughs> we could get our people. There are ways that this could have been managed so much better. Um, you know, Biden in his speech a couple of days ago, I thought was awfully disingenuous when he said that uh, there weren't calls by Afghans to get out. Or he listened to the Afghan president who said not to issue such a program. I said, when was the last time we listened to the Afghan president? Right. I mean, he, he's been undermining the whole thing for, for many, many years. He was not um, someone who was working in the U.S. best interest. I just thought it was extremely disingenuous. And I, I said, please, President Biden, come look at my messages and my DMs from the past six months, um, especially since this, when the U.S. announced that it was the final withdrawal this spring. I think it was in April. This should have just begun right away. Um, and, it, you know, the bureaucratic process in our immigration system is just shameful. It's shameful. It is. So what, how many, do you have any sense of how many people you've been able to at least get this, this letter and help yes. them in that way? I don't know the exact numbers. It's moving so fast. And now we have more than 40 volunteers from all over the world who are helping us. Um, we have well over a thousand um, applicants or people who we are helping right now. Um, I don't know the exact number of the people who've gotten the letters. Um, we need to follow up, actually, with many of them, because our job is just to do the handoff. We do the handoff between the organization and, um, and the employers. And some of the employers are really stepping up. They're big contractors that have been working in Afghanistan for a long time. They've set up really nice websites that make it very, very easy. Um, some of them haven't. And I've been really surprised in sort of the democracy promotion world. Some of these NGOs who you'd think would be, um, you know, very active. It's been, I found a lot, a very difficult time um, getting, uh, they just don't seem to have the, the bureaucracy, the, the systems in place to help these people um, as fast as they need to be. One issue that we've confronted is that not everybody who approaches us is eligible, and that's kind of heartbreaking. Um, yes. A lot of Afghan government employees who worked in the department, you know, their, their Department of Defense, or who worked in the Ministry of Women's Affairs, they were Afghan government employees. They were not Afghan uh, U.S. government employees. They didn't work on U.S. government projects. Um, but I would argue that some of those people are at the greatest risk of um, retribution. Um, so, and, and UN, UN, UN hasn't done anything for their staff. Um, they were getting several queries from, from locals who worked on human rights and rule of law programs for the United Nations. The UN isn't a country. They're not evacuating their local staff. Um, so those wow. are some of the issues that we've come across. The U.S. actually has a generous program, very generous program, but is making it really, really hard on people who are in such duress to get information. Now, we knew that this was, I mean, inevitable. Uh, we didn't know. We didn't know exactly how it was going to play out. But we were saying we're getting out and we were drawing down troops. This shouldn't we have been doing 
getting these people out at the same time months and months and months ago. Yes. We, we, we've been yeah. withdrawing. For, we've been withdrawing for a long time from Afghanistan. I, I don't know. And I, I just so disappointed. Biden, obviously, you know, is not interested in, in Afghanistan, really thinks it was a mistake. You could see a lot of anger. Right. And, and, and to be fair, I, I actually agree with his decision to withdraw. Um, hmm. I've gone back and forth on this. Um, but I don't I think the longer that we were there, we were not very effective. And I know uh, we were, and I know there's been a lot of attention on, you know, women and women's rights, and uh, you know that is obviously very important. But the, I, I work on rural Afghanistan that's been devastated by war over the past 20 years, the past 40 years, and at this point, the government only controlled, you know, prior to this announcement to withdraw, the government only controlled 30% uncontested. Right. So. The gains that we saw happen so quickly, for those of us who follow Afghanistan, it was not, I mean, the, the, the fall of the capitals was surprising. The Taliban were very sophisticated, are exhibiting enormous sophistication in their messaging and in their ways to get these regions to fall. They've negotiated um, artfully. They have promised not to hurt people. They, for the most part, they did not harm soldiers. They said, you know, surrender, go back to your village. Um, they've captured former warlords who were opponents, captured them and let them go. Um, so that, do you think that kind of, do you think that kind of, do you think that is just happening now or will this be a sort of new kind of Taliban? Do you think, can, do you, are you willing to risk believing that they will not retaliate and be vengeful? This is the million-dollar question. If I knew the answer, I'd I'd be running the world. Um, but I, I think that uh, one of, there are some very promising signs. One of the signs that I see, and and I was not one of those people, for the record, who said there's a new Taliban, there's a moderate Taliban. I was not one of those people at all. Um, what I see, though, is a Taliban that understands the grievances of people. We see this in their messaging. You know, today I saw on Twitter, um, they're all over social media. They're using cell phones. Um, they're not yeah. going to be able to censor things the way they did. It's, Afghan society has changed so much. Um, so, you know, the, the state building effort was a, a, just a vast failure from the humanitarian development, civilian democracy promotion side to the military side. Um, I, I blame us for a lot of that. We, we created a lot of monsters in Afghanistan. Um, we, we picked really bad people to support. Um, and I was hollering about that for years. Um, but Afghan society changed in a fundamental way, especially in the cities. And the Taliban are not going to be able to govern the way that they did 20 years ago. And their messaging seems right now to indicate that they understand that very well. Yes. They understand the grievances that people have. This morning I saw a post on Twitter, the Taliban, they went to the, the equivalent of Duquesne Light. And they go to Duquesne Light and they're saying, we understand the problems with Duquesne Light. <laughs> that some people who have a lot of money get electricity to their houses. And some people who don't have money don't get power and have to pay bribes. That's not going to happen anymore. That's a powerful message to a lot of people because it you means bet. that they, 
they understand like the the alienation. The reason this government fell was because people felt they had no government that really fought for them. It's not because they supported the Taliban. They are just tired and weary. These poor forces, you know, on the front lines with no logistics, you know, no support. This wasn't a technical question. This was a political question. They didn't have the heart to fight anymore for this, for a corrupt government. And um, so we'll see if they can deliver. It's a big, big issue right now. It's a big question. You know, I'm trying not to see this ideologically. I see a lot of friends who are saying, you know, the Taliban are evil. We can't support them. And I, I, I've seen a lot of the evil, right? I, I hear, I hear that. On the other hand, yeah, they are, they are, you know, extending an olive branch. Um, for now, are they real? I don't know. Uh, it's a risk to take, right? Uh, to legitimize them, yeah. of course. But on the other hand, Afghanistan's had 43 years of constant war. Perhaps engagement could lead to some. Maybe they're not moderate. Maybe it could lead to some moderation. But the real risk the Taliban faces, I think, by their desire to moderate is that they, they upset. They're more ex- everybody party. Every party has extreme wings, right? <laughs> we know yeah, that. In uh, yeah. Oh, so they, yeah. They have, they have an extreme wing, right? That won't be happy to see this. They've got to balance that as well. So there's, we can assume that behind the scenes right now, there is a, a, a lot of push and pull going on uh, within the Taliban right, of how to govern now. Oh, absolutely. And I, I was just on yeah. the phone this morning with a, a pretty senior, uh, very well-known Afghan politician um, who's not, not, not allied with the current government, um, an important public figure. And, um, you know, I, I get the sense from him that there's a lot of talk happening right now. And, and, and he said he's been talking to the Taliban and he said that they were surprised. Everyone was surprised that, that Kabul fell the way that it did, um, as quickly as it did. They were caught off guard. Um, the yeah. government was caught off guard. The people were, we were caught off guard. Everybody was caught off guard. Um, but, and, and so now is a really critical moment, thinking through these issues, thinking about whether to engage or not. I think we should just take off our ideological blinders and yeah. think about the people of Afghanistan um, does it make sense to engage them? The U.S. government has frozen central bank assets. Um, that That is important because the former president, it just was reported that he ran off with $169 million in cash. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Ashraf Ghani uh, showed up in, uh, yes, the United, with, in the United Arab it. Emirates with $169 million. Yeah. And we loved him. Ivy League educated, PhD in anthropology from Columbia University, World Bank. Uh, The U.S. (laughs) loved it. The U.S. and I I mean, the U.S. loved him um, for years. Um, They just glorified him and people in Washington of all administrations. um, And love for him really began blossoming. Well, what? So what? I mean, are we that what naive or yes? Yeah, we are. Yes, yes. Yes, we were not good at this. And I think this is a lesson for us not to think about, you know, U.S. interventionism, you know, restraint versus intervene and what kind of foreign policy. We just to do this kind of work requires like thinking and understanding the places that you're going. And if we if we're not good at it, we shouldn't do it. Um, or well, quite clearly. That, yeah. 
that's a, that's a lesson we've never learned though. Right. And <laughs> Jennifer, I mean, I don't know. I've been around for a long time and our arrogance and our hubris and our, our sense that of course we can overlay, I mean, our cultural ignorance, I, I, it, it is mind boggling. And yet right, we'll do but, it again. But, 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 but let's remember though, the days after nine 11, Right, the feelings that we had, and 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 to to be fair, that many people. I mean, I, I remember I was doing field research in I don't know, 2007, 2008, and Afghans were so excited to have the U.S. military there, so excited. Um, that was a that was a different time, and things after 2008 went really, really bad. Um, there's a number of reasons for that, but you know, then I came back to the U.S. and you know, my colleagues had campus would say, oh, you're, you've gone to the land of the imperial power, the U.S. is imperial. I said, no, the U.S. is popular. The U.S., um, the, the things that the U.S. is doing, uh, it resonates with a lot of people. I just think that, that we don't do it very well. We don't do it smartly. We, I don't know the, the words that I'm searching for, um, but there's so many misunderstandings of what what Afghanistan was, and now it's just become um, you know, it's heartbreaking to see these scenes. Things seem to be calming down in Kabul. Um, I'm, I'm very encouraged by what I see coming from the Taliban. We need to take advantage of that opportunity. Maybe we'll, you know, it will be easy. Maybe someone will say we're being naive now and, and having this. And someone else knew all along that we shouldn't have talked to them. Um, but it is an opportunity. Uh, you know, this friend I spoke to this morning says for the first time, they're not hearing gunshots in Kabul. Um, there's no fear of suicide bombing that every province has had, you know, most of the country right now is experiencing some kind of peace that's unheard of, unheard of for the past 40 years. So I'm hoping, I'm hoping the Taliban, um, can stay true to their word. We have good reasons to believe they will not be able to. And what happens then? So there's no easy answers to any of this at all. And anybody who has one doesn't know what they're talking about. <laughs> Can I ask you, uh, as someone who, uh, you know, is talking, is, is having to interact with these terrified people there and who knows so many of these people there, can I ask what, the, I cannot imagine the emotional toll on you because I know I can barely watch just the pictures without just feeling sick to my stomach. So, and, and I'm removed to you. It's personal in so yeah. many ways. So how, how are you doing? I just have to keep going. You know, I realize the privilege that I have being able to sit here and go through my Twitter DMs and my Facebook DMs and, and try to respond to people. It's hard. I think it, we were all just shocked on Saturday watching the government fall Sunday morning. Um, it, it, it's, it's, it's hard. It's, it's very, very hard. The messages from very dear friends of mine saying that they don't want to leave their house, that they're afraid of being targeted. Um, that's very real and feeling a responsibility to them. And that's why, you know, we set this up is that we have a responsibility to these people who helped us. I have a responsibility to my friends 
um, who helped me, who taught me, who were my teachers, who continued to be my teachers. Uh, and it breaks my heart that the only thing I can do is send emails. Like I want to get on a plane and go and get them. <laughs> and I would. Yeah, of course. Um, of course. But it, 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 you know, just feeling helplessness is, this is the way to respond to it. Um, I'm tired. I've got four little kids at home. Thanks, Pittsburgh Public oh. Schools. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> oh, dear. That's a whole nother story. I've, I've actually oh, just my, told my gosh. kids, uh, yeah, yeah, what a mess. What a mess. And then, what a mess. Um, so, uh, yeah, for the past year and a half. Um, so, it, it's, we're just exhausted. But um, this war has been exhausted. I'm, I'm, I can't imagine what my friends are going through because they, they agreed to support this effort, thinking that the U.S. would be there. Okay, maybe they knew the U.S. was going to withdraw, but they knew that their government would stay in place. You know, at least Kabul would be safe. And that just crumbled so quickly. Um, and there, there are scholars who look at this. This is not unique. We, we have this, you think about the collapse of the Berlin Wall. We call these cascades. And yes. uh, what this tells us is that everybody's lying to the public. They all know, they call it private truths, public lies. It's a great book on this kind of dynamic. And it means that this was just a charade. There was a charade and everybody knew it. And it just took a little prick for everything to fall apart. And it doesn't mean that the well, that, people of Afghanistan, yeah. Jennifer, I was thinking the charade, though, was occurring in our country as well, from our government, with the same kind oh. of public public lies and private truths, right? I mean, for every Republican, Democratic administration, it didn't matter. We were being lied to. Absolutely. And I would just... Uh, I would encourage everybody, there's a special inspector general for Afghanistan reconstruction. Uh, if there's anybody who deserves a medal for this, it's his office. Like you could go to his website, download reports. In fact, he issued one yesterday about 20 years of lessons learned on Afghanistan reconstruction and basically diagnosed everything. He's been writing about, and this is a government official, and he got harangued by the aid community, by the military. I mean, you name it. Um, and I saw problems in the development, the aid, you know, the humanitarian side, um, those organizations. In fact, I found the military to be much more willing to respond to problems and to adjust their strategy than many of the people I saw on the humanitarian and the development side of things, which really shocked me and was very disappointing. Um, did the humanity, did some of these humanitarian efforts, the, the money that went, I mean, the, obviously a lot of money went into uh, the wrong hands. This was a yeah. totally corrupt regime. Well, uh, yeah, it corrupt, but also corrupt aid agencies. You know, I'd go, uh, you know, even, I, I was there, I was in Kabul last year, right when COVID hit. Um, I was actually meeting with the mayors. Um, I was asked to give a talk to the mayors of Afghanistan to talk about local governance reform. Um, that's actually, you know, I work on local governance, self-governance, the right. center I have works on these governance issues. Honor of my life, you know, to be able to speak before the people that you study. Um, and they all said, you know, they talked about the problems with the constitution. It's way too centralized. They wanted federalism, decentralization, and the president's controlling all the authority in his own hands. Um, and they want to do more. Uh, and, you know, I just meet some of these aid agencies, they're, they're spending, the problem was, is that 
we thought, okay, for giving all this money to the military, we also have to work on the civilian side as well. And the civilian side meant let's give huge amounts of money to develop the country. There was a lot of, you know, pressure to see strong humanitarian results. But the result was that we put way too much, way, way, way too much money into the country, created our whole uh, bureaucratic system in, in, in Washington is really broken in terms of how we deliver aid. We have these huge, you know, NGOs and contracting systems that eat up a lot of money. Very, very little of that money actually gets to recipients. And then you have hmm. in Kabul, you have all these aid agencies who are sitting in these offices in these compounds, and they're not able to travel. And how on earth can you administer a $300 million program if you can't ever visit the village that you're giving money to? That's a recipe for disaster. And we knew that all along. The Special Inspector General's office has been writing about this for years, testified before Congress. Um, we knew this, but we kept going. You know, I, as you're talking, I'm thinking I just saw something in the paper today about how if you want to help the poor people of Haiti, here's where you can give. Are, you're not naming any names, but I mean, that that would be some NGO, some humanitarian. Yeah. Are we throwing – I mean – There are some very good organizations. Oftentimes those appeals don't go directly to people. They go and pay overhead for nonprofits. And not to say that the, the overhead isn't important. Um you know, who do you see as a good name? Can you name a few? Oh, good I, ones? I don't, I don't, no, I don't want to get, I don't want to get into names. Okay. Yeah, I don't, because I don't want to exclude either. <laughs> so, okay. um, but All it right. is a very tricky business. There are some very good people out there doing work, um, and you know, I think the best thing is to get aid, and this is directly into the hands of people. Give people cash. We don't need to teach people how to fish. They know how to fish. Uh, I mean, it's it's that simple. I think a lot of the programs, the humanitarian programs, were could be quite patronizing to people. Um, people have a lot of dignity, and and you know, one of the things that I saw in Afghanistan was in the areas that there were peace. There were some peaceful parts of the country. We don't read about them very often, but you know, the ability of these communities to engage in local self governance, do all this really cool self help. Um, manage, you know, local infrastructure and, and irrigation systems. Um, you saw businesses thrive. You saw commerce thrive. You saw education thrive. And people gave up on, like, the formal education system. So the, the number of private schools, private universities in Afghanistan was astronomical because there's such a hunger for education and the need wasn't really being met. And so people just took things into their own hands and they did so much. And I, I just want people to not walk away with this story that the people didn't want to fight. The Taliban won. People got, they were exhausted and they've had to put up a lot for themselves. Um, and, you know, that there's a lot of courage there and not to see things in just such black and white terms. Um, the situation with women is heartbreaking. <clears throat> it's complicated really complicated. Um, I'm just, I'm trying to be hopeful Je about the future. Yeah. Jennifer, I cannot, I mean, I thank you so much. And you've got more important things to do than talk to us. And our time is up. I cannot thank you enough for, for helping us uh, in the time you've spent with us to see things uh in not so black and white uh, a manner, which is always, of course, pretty much how our media portray how people what people see is such a sort of almost 
uh, cartoon of uh, of reality and and not often even reality. So I I wish you all the best in the wonderful work you're doing, and uh, I wish you a measure of uh, internal peace <laughs> as well. Thank you, and I, I yeah, I've been listening to you since I was a kid. You and Uncle Dougie. Uh, so I'm a uh, huge fan. Yes, from back uh, in the day. You are yes. kidding me. No, oh, I was the, you. I was the last guest on Uncle Dougie's show uh, before what? he got fired. I think yes, I was just came back from Afghanistan, and I would write him letters when I was in Afghanistan. Um, and I listened to you for years, so it's just a real pleasure for to be here. It really means a lot. God, say that. Okay, that blows me away. Thank you. I am honored. <laughs> yeah. I am honored. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you so much. All right. Take care. All right. Back to work. Bye-bye. <laughs> Bye. Bye. Whoa. Wasn't expecting that. Jennifer Murtazashvili. You notice I just called her Jennifer after I first said it. Uh, wow. Wow. All right. I think that was about as unvarnished a, a picture that, as we are likely to get uh, from from anybody. Wow. So, thank you guys uh, for that. I want to uh, I want to thank uh, Zach for uh, for setting that up uh, uh, for us, and uh, my best to uh, God for efforts. Okay, that's it, and uh, stay dry. I'll see you. See you tomorrow. Bye bye. Lynn Cullen Live, Monday through Thursday from 10 a.m. to 11 a.m. and archived at pghcitypaper.com. The opinions expressed on Lynn Cullen Live are those of the host and do not necessarily reflect the viewpoints of Pittsburgh City Paper or its advertisers. <laughs>